This is a Hot Pie Original. Hello, Dr. Schaefer. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes, yes. We are here to talk about brains. And, you know, we all want them and we all have some of them, I guess. And so we want to make sure that ours is functioning, doing well. And so I have a few questions for you. But first, please tell us a little bit about your background and why you're not just a pretty face here talking about brains. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So background is I actually minored in neuroscience in college, Um, fell in love with it by accident. Yeah. And uh, went from there, went to medical school um, and kind of found out that the one thing I truly enjoy about everybody is their brain. So um, did my residency in Chicago um, at Loyola, and then I actually did a movement disorder fellowship at the Muhammad Ali Center in Phoenix. Um, So I'm I'm a subspecialist as a neurologist. So I handle Parkinson's, dementia, things like that. So not just stroke. Um, And then afterwards, I was a professor at the University of Utah. Um, I have a research company, actually, believe it or not. So I do a lot of research. Fell in love with research also by accident when I was at the Muhammad Ali Center um, and carried that with me to the University of Utah and California is home. So about two and a half years ago, three years ago now, I actually decided it's time for me to come home. Um, took over for a retiring doctor out here. So I opened up my own business um, and took over her practice. So I run a fairly large uh, Parkinson's and movement disorder clinic out in uh, Newport Beach. Yes, you do. And okay, so um, brains. You know, there's so much uh, that we don't know about brains. And I know, I know that we are coming into the, the time in, in the world that we are really, truly having exponential understanding about brains. And I, I did a, a little bit of uh, research about that. But first of all, I want to ask you, what are the factors that you would suggest to anyone to boost their brain health, to keep them healthy, ha- having a healthy brain? main thing is activity. Um, Here in the U.S., a lot of people love the television Um, and nothing (laughs) wrong against television, but that is a very passive activity where our brains are not being active. Hmm. So you want to exercise your brain just like your body. You need to exercise your brain. So it's it's providing the fuel that it needs. So drinking water, making sure that you're eating enough healthy foods. Um, Don't just supply your brain with sugar. And then making sure that it's active. So you you view it just like a muscle that you would on, on the rest of your body. So there's no separation between the body and the brain in terms of what makes it healthy. You know, mm-hmm. we all know we have to exercise. You know, we all know we should eat good food, all this. So it's the same thing for brain health. And Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So if we wanted to do specific fitness, if you will, uh, for brains, what would be a fitness tip you would have for memory? Um, for memory itself, again, it's, it's the specificity of it is difficult simply because you have to do what you're engaged in. Um, so for, for the younger generations, a lot of it's video games. We're actually doing a lot of research with uh, memory and virtual reality video games, believe it or not. Really? Uh, right. And so there's a new company that I've been working with recently who they actually program and they put computer games into this virtual reality uh, system. And 
it's actual exercise for your brain that they have made fun. And so it's a video game, all virtual reality that you're wearing. Um, and you just sit there and do a bunch of exercises and don't even know you're doing it. Um, so you put on goggles and you're uh-huh. in, or, or are you doing video games like, you know, with, with, sorry, it's okay. Um, well, no, these are goggles. Um, so it's the, if you've seen like second, the, second, um, hold on a second, yes. let's, let's edit that out and let's come back and just go for the goggles. Okay. Go on. Perfect. Yeah. So these are the, if you've ever seen the Modus XR goggles, that's what these are. Interesting. Yeah. So you put that in any age, I mean, but you know, teenagers, young adults, of course, Mm -hmm. are big on video games. So are they literally helping their brain when they're doing that? Absolutely. That's the beauty of it is training the brain doing video games. (laughs) It's a lot of fun. Um, The, the, there's a concept. um, If you've heard of luminosity, Yes, I um, yeah. it's an online, uh, basically again, video games that you can play on the computer where it's just fun. You don't know you're doing it, but a lot of it is the computer actually exercising with your brain. Mm-hmm. So any age can do that. Any age. Yes. yes. And should probably. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And if you don't like computers again, I have a gentleman who's, uh, he's a physicist and so he gets very bored with computers he loves lecturing. And so he, all he does all day long, he, he creates lectures uh-huh. um, and he goes through the vast knowledge that he has. And he actually teaches that keeps his brain active and teaches other people. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Well, my brain is doing it. Then I'm, I'm being stimulated by talking to you here on a podcast. That's wonderful. Good to know. Good to know. I feel smarter already. Uh, okay. How about, so that's for memory, fitness for memory. How about for attention? Does everybody have ADHD these days? I mean, does anybody pay attention? It seems like everybody has ADHD. Um, it does. Right. A lot of it is uh, discipline. Um, it, it takes a lot of discipline to refocus yourself. So again, if you were engaged in something, if you enjoy something, then you're engaged and you're focused and all the world around you melts away mm-hmm. versus if you're having to do a task and you're trying so hard to keep focused and you go, Oh wait over here. Oh wait over here. It, it's, it's being disciplined. So not a lot of men, believe it or not, and sorry for this, but there is there is a difference between men and women and their thinking. A lot of men are very linear mm-hmm. and they need to complete one task and move on to the next versus women. We're all over the place and it takes a lot of uh, discipline for us. Granted, we multitask more, but it also takes a lot of discipline to complete a task and then move forward. It For women, it takes more discipline to complete it a does. task. And as men being linear, they get more completion done. Is that what you're saying? They, they are able to complete the task because they do it to completion. So they start one. So in, mm. in effect, their productivity is, is more simply because they're, they're finishing the task. They're taking that task, working it to the end, and then move on to the next task. So in, in my world of when my people can't multitask, that's what I tell them is you have to think like a man. You have to go linear. Interesting. You know, and I would have said that because the, because they can't multi, multitask, that they would be less productive. Of course, that's a woman speaking. But exactly. <laughs> That's a woman speaking who can multitask. Yeah. The issue is, is when the multitasking ability goes away. Yeah. Or does it go away? I mean, at a certain age, do we stop multitasking? Yes. Oh, it, as you age, it gets a little harder to multitask. And then mm. with certain conditions, it gets harder to multitask. 
Interesting. So then if it, if you're having difficulty multitasking, just get more linear, finish the project and then exactly. move on. So, and again, it's a lot of discipline. It's, it's making sure, I mean, you might say squirrel over that way, but it's <laughs> saying, okay, let me get back. Let me finish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you find? I, yeah, I have this ongoing debate with my husband about the importance of writing things down. And um, as a way of focusing, as a way of keeping attention, because I don't know, it could be age, of course, but, you know, I go to sleep at nine. I'm pretty well wiped the slate clean. You know, I wake up and I go, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, Pat Pearson. Yes, that's me. So I kind of start over. But if I write down things from the night before, then I can start there. What do you think about that process for all of us? It is a fantastic mechanism to fall back on should you need it. And it's a fantastic mechanism to use on a daily basis. Um, Most people work in that fashion, not everybody, um, but most people work in that fashion that you want to sleep and you want to sleep well. And so I call it a data dump where before you go to sleep at night, Uh you write down everything that's in your head so you can actually get it out of your head and go to sleep. Right. Um, yeah. I, interestingly, I have a friend of mine who runs a research uh, company and she, when she is interviewing people, employees, potential employees, um, she watches who brings a pad and who writes everything down because those are the people in the long run that are going to be more efficient, more detail oriented because they, they'll be able to get all the detail versus the people that walk in and go, okay, I get it. I get it. Uh, I get it. And then they walk away and have to be reminded 10 times. Um, so again, yeah. it's a very good mechanism to keep yourself focused, active and efficient. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah. Versus, you know, I'm, I see it in, in, in waiters, you know, the waiters who come over and you go, this is okay. What do you want? You order and they don't write it down. They, and they come back and half the stuff isn't there. Yeah, I get it. So writing it down and that helps our attention and focus. And we need yes. both. We need to be focused and be attentive. Now, what, um, uh, you're talking about male and female brains, which is fascinating. Um, is it true that men have a lack of more lack of attention than women do? I actually would say the opposite, believe it or not. I think that men, it depends on what I know, right? <laughs> whoa, whoa. I think it really honestly depends on what it is. Women are more, more emotional by nature. Um, men are more detail oriented by nature. So that's where in the job force, when you need somebody that is very detail oriented and they need to focus on the labs and focus on what is, what's, what is hard, straight facts, they do very well when you get them in an emotional standpoint and then walls and surrounded by men, but when you get them in, a, in an emotional <laughs> standpoint, they do not do well for the reason that they, they don't seem to be able to connect the two. Well, and, and tell me a little bit about the, the brain in that, in emotion and, and thinking and the differentiation uh, of the two. Uh, because, you know, in my line of work in mental health, of course, we do a lot of talking about um, thoughts are things. You know, if you think and it directs your feelings and feelings and logic are, are in, in um, opposition many times. But where exactly in the brain, just for us nerds who like to know that stuff, where is all this located? That's the age old question. We don't know yet. Oh, really? Um, I thought you really, there there are theories. It's kind of like there's a theory that the memory starts in the hippocampus. Um, Uh However, we don't know that for sure. So we also don't know why emotion exists. Um, We have 
theories. It's kind of like the the age old story is of Phineas Gage. Um, With the and, thing in his head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Psych 101. Yes, you yes. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, is that, was that real or was that not? Because it 100%, you can't prove it. So the people that got the uh, lobotomies, 100% did not act the same way. So let's go what, back to Phineas Gage, because most yes. people don't know that. Tell the story, please. Uh, Phineas Gage, I don't remember what year this was. It was a very long time ago. Um, he was a young and upcoming uh, gentleman who, um, very well-to-do, very uh, smart guy. He was a young foreman who, um, he was batting down um, railroad tracks. And as he was hitting one of the explosives, it actually took one of the uh, rebars and threw it back through his head. Um, and so it actually went right through his frontal lobes and up the other side. Right, um, right. Didn't kill him. It didn't kill him. He survived it. He was actually awake the entire time um, and talking. Jeez. Right. Yeah. And so they noticed the, the doctors that saw him actually wrote journals afterwards. And they noticed that he became uh, he had bits of rage. He had he had separation of emotions. Um, and that's where our frontal lobotomies came to be. Um, they took a lot of this information. The guy also had seizures. He had a lot of other things going on, but they noticed a straight personality change with him. Yes. Um, yes. and that's where, again, in the, in the psych world, it became lobotomies. Yes. Um, yeah. Which, which once again is a cutting uh, between the, the lobes of the brain that was done and it still is done, I think, um, for um, uh, for reducing anger and anxiety and all kinds of other things, whether yes. it worked or not is a whole nother question. I think, yeah, and, right. Well, it, it seems to work very differently in, in everybody who had it. So that yeah. that's again the age old question is where does personality come from? Where does emotion come from? We don't know yet. Interesting. I had no idea we didn't know where emotion came from. So we don't know the we don't know which part of the brain would be an emotional center of the brain. We have ideas like the limbic system. It's supposed to be the yeah. fear and the emotion, but we don't know for sure. Hmm. Well, from the horse's mouth, there you go. All right. So um, this has been illuminating already. I mean, I'm now appreciating so much more. Um, processing, that's another important part of the brain. And some people process differently. Once again, gender-based or not? Always. Um, again, this gets very complicated because you, everybody is very different. There are stereotypes for a reason. So I always laugh who comes into my office and they have their spreadsheets and I'll always ask, are you an engineer? And usually 90% of the time they'll say yes. <laughs> um, so everybody processes things slightly different. Now my engineers, and again, who chooses the job? Does the job choose you or do you choose the job? I think ultimately, right. Um, my engineers, they're just, forms that way. That's the way that they process. They like their lists, their charts um, are my artists. They are, they usually, again, the stereotypical artist comes in and they're very well dressed and, and uh, gorgeous. Um, but the way that they process, they don't handle scientific discussion very well. Um, and then you kind of have your in-between who, who can function in society and, and they do very well. So processing fast or slow, is that a um, idiosyncratic tube by the person or by the gender or no? no. I, by the person, not by, again, you can have your fast or slow men. You can have your fast or slow women. Yeah. And do they always get married? <laughs> <laughs> so 
that there's something to to struggle with, you know. Right? Exactly. The slow man gets married to the fast woman and then the whole world explodes. <laughs> well, there's always there's always the attractions of opposites, right? So the other thing um I was reading about was sequencing, the ability to sequence things in order. And then one of the, the uh examples they gave is a uh multi-lingual uh, translator and what goes on in the brain that you're hearing one language and speaking another. What, I mean, um, but most of us don't do that. What kind of sequencing issues are there that you see about the brain? So interestingly, and, and this is just an aside, and I'm sorry for this, but I am a nerd. So um, with with multilingual people, it's very interesting when they have a stroke. So the, the language center in right-handed people, it's the left side of the brain. Yeah. Um, and so when you have a stroke that hits the speech center, but you have a bilingual person, it can actually take out the, say you were born speaking Spanish, but predominantly you speak English now. Um, very interestingly, you can take out the English, but you'll still speak Spanish fluently. So it seems right. It seems to hit one language. Um, and, and maintains the other. It does. It's very interesting. That is interesting. Goodness. So I've had people, I actually um, recently saw somebody who lost their, they, as a child, they spoke one language and then predominantly spoke English through their, their whole adult life. They're in their 70s, 80s, year, 80 years old. And now they only speak the language they spoke as a child. My goodness. What if they never, never really spoke uh, either language well? <laughs> what happens then? And then you're in trouble. <laughs> then you're in trouble. So. You got to learn a new one. All right. All right. All right. all right. So, you know, what in my line of work, of course, is being a psychotherapist and doing this podcast on self-sabotage, um, I hear a lot about stress. And from your point of view, um, as a, a doctor and neurologist, what happens in the brain when you're stressed? Ah, that's, it's a huge question, and I will try to pare it down for the answer. Um, with stress, stress releases chemicals in the body. Um, and so you can go into an actual state. Um, where we can actually see it if you've been in a prolonged stress state. We can see it because your inflammatory state goes up. Your ability to think goes down. Um, all the cell production in your body tends to change with the amount of stress that you're under. Um, and so if you're, again, under prolonged stress, you have inflammatory uh, chemicals that are just raging throughout the body. Your brain is not functioning the way it's supposed to because of the inflammatory chemicals. On top of that, probably not sleeping well, which isn't feeding your brain. Your brain needs to have some sleep to rest and reset. Sure. Um, so in effect, prolonged stress will harm you over again over time. Um, and how long is prolonged? So that depends on the stress, too. So again, I know I'm not giving you straight on answers, but say you're under tremendous amount of stress for a very short time, that yeah. can be that can be just as bad as being in a stressful marriage or something, something much less over 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, they have a lot of interesting studies on our, uh, uh, our prisoners of war. Um, so the, mm -hmm. the government actually um, with their permission, uh, the prisoners of war do a lot of studies and you can actually see the amount of stress and what it does to the body on these people where oh again, hair changes, bodily functions change, ability to think changes. 
Goodness, goodness. And and in the recovery of that, how can you then deactivate your stress in, in ways that are, are helpful for your brain? It's learning to, um, you have your good stress relief and you have your bad stress relief. And so it's ideally you have more good than bad. Um, so things that are good stress relievers are things like exercise to, to an extent, exercise. Um, you need to sometimes work out your stress, mm-hmm. um, ability to self reflect and say, this is what's stressing me out. And let me either remove me, myself from that situation or, or be able to figure out how to handle that situation. Your bad stress relievers are things like alcohol, drugs, um, getting into fights and arguments, things like that. Um, so predominantly you're trying to train yourself to do this rather than this. A lot of my PTSD, uh, veterans, again, they started off with more bad stress. Um, and it just cycles it more because they end up having more PTSD because they continue to put themselves in that same situation. Sure. Sure. Versus the people that learn, okay, this is a stressor that I can either handle or I need to stay away from. And so they, they learn to cope or they learn to remove. Are you, um, are you, do you refer them to cognitive behavioral therapy then? I mean, is that part of the stress Absolutely. release? Yes. Yes. Right answer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have, I just uh, did an interview with a, a woman that you would find very interesting. Her name is Lisa Luckert, Luckert and she uh, was a widow from 9-11 and she used that stress, that horrible experience to um, create what she called a positive uh, PTG, positive trauma growth. So instead of PTSD, mm-hmm. P, you know, PTG. So, and, and from that, she said that stress can be used as an opener, an opener for a new experience, for new knowledge, for new behavioral change. Have have you seen people do that with stress? Have you helped them do that to make differences? Of course. I mean, in, in a lot of what I do, um, you see a lot of foundations. And the foundations are made because people are doing that exact same thing, where something tragic happened. Somebody died. Somebody had an illness. Somebody, somebody suffered something. And in my my viewpoint and a lot of people's viewpoints, everything happens for a reason. And so people are taking that bad event and making it into something good. Um, Muhammad Ali, actually, Muhammad Ali took this thing where he noticed a lot of people couldn't afford their medication for Parkinson's. Yes. And so he said, look, let me start a foundation. Um, let me start this fund where I will set up this. And these are the requirements for people. So he took a negative and he made it into a positive and he helped so many people oh, after that. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Well, and that's someone who could and and then did because it also had affected him, changed his life. Now, uh, there's, um, there's a lot of information around stress, at least in my field, that talks about um, uh, meditation. And how, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? What does that do to the brain? I think it is hugely beneficial. Um, and when you watch, there's not a lot of quote unquote Western studies on meditation, but when you get people who are actually doing meditation and watch them, um, and you can take the biofeedback information. So we have biofeedback machines, um, where it works and it works well. 
it's the the people have to learn how to meditate. That's the big thing here is that you have to understand how to do it. And once you kind of learn to let the world go away and you're just kind of relaxing and allowing your brain to get into those levels, you do well. Yeah. Um, interestingly, Medtronic, uh, they are a big device company out here in all over the world, but in the U.S. in particular, um, they have what's called the Bakken Institute. And the Bakken Institute is up in Minnesota. And when you go there, they actually have this, um, it's a biofeedback machine. Um, but it's interesting because you actually get to see it work where you have these helmets on and you're actually pushing, you're competing with one another and you're trying to get your brain waves. What you're, what you're doing with meditation essentially where you're trying to get your brain waves into a certain uh, level. And when you do that at the Bakken Institute, it actually pushes this ball onto the other side. So the whole goal of this game is to, to push the push ball. The ball. Push the ball. Yeah. 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 So, so they're it using shows you that meditation can work. Interesting. And when you say you have to do the right meditation, is there a, is there a wrong meditation? I mean, is there an inappropriate, does not work meditation? I find a lot of people try meditation, but they don't understand what it is, meaning that they sit there and they cross their legs and they do this <laughs> and they try to let the world melt away, but they're constantly always thinking. Um, and so that's what a lot of people think it is because that's what they see on television. Yeah. And then they come into my office and they go, I tried and it didn't work. And so they're not actually taking the time to understand what meditation is um, and, and the practice of it. So they do courses for a reason. Yeah. Um, that that's what I mean by the right meditation. So you would recommend somebody if they really do want to reduce their stress, reduce the inflammation in their body, get their brain into high gear fitness, the meditation, it, that they should take a course. They should learn the appropriate steps. Take the, take a course, read a book, figure out how to do it. Again, everybody functions in their own fashion. But yes, definitely. You need to do it appropriately. I don't, you know, sitting there cross-legged isn't, isn't meditation. Yeah. Well, and maybe yoga though. I mean, maybe good stretching, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So there's a word I love, um, neuroplasticity. I have no idea what it means, but it's such a fun word. Uh, I know, you know, so tell us about what that means, please. It, what it ultimately means is the brain is fantastic. Um, the brain <laughs> Right. Again, I'm a nerd and I'm sorry for it, but um, I'm not. But no. the brain, it can, it's smart and it changes. Um, and right. the best story I can give you on neuroplasticity is this was many years ago. Um, I was, I, I was in residency and I was sitting there and my colleague got a phone call to go down to the ER to see a, a kid who had had a seizure. And I was looking at the images with her and on the, we had a brain MRI and on the brain MRI, the kid only had half a brain, literally half a brain. And I got, I gave that exact same look. And I said, I've got to go see what this kid looks My like goodness. on the outside. And I go down and he, we had a pediatric floor. And so I go down and there's this normal little kid playing video games, would not have known the difference. Right. So this oh kid gosh. had half a brain and that half of the brain, again, he was born that way. So he was born that the, way. Yeah. That half of the brain took over all the function of the rest of the brain. When you have a stroke, same idea, the stroke, the, the area that the stroke happened in, that area has died. But the surrounding tissue will actually take over the function of that area. Yes, yes. And there was a book, and I, sh I'm, I know you know it. Uh, I think it was called A Stroke of Luck or A Stroke of Something, written by a Harvard. Um, 
neurologist who had a stroke and she watched herself lose consciousness and knew every step of the way where she was going. Do you, do you know the book I'm speaking of? I, I've heard of it. I've not read it. Yeah. But I am aware of it. it. It was, I mean, it was an amazing book because, and she was 38 years old. So, I mean, she was a young woman and she had this massive stroke, but because of neuroplasticity, because of the um, ability of the brain to regenerate, she came back. I mean, and, you know, with a lot of effort and a lot of, you know, hard work. One of my first podcasts I did uh, was on resilience. And I interviewed a woman who had been shot in the head by terrorists and, and lived and taught herself to speak, to walk, to, I mean, it's pretty incredible what the brain can do. Uh, just- my own, I mean, I've shared this with you in the past, my own father, my, my father was in an accident. And so he has a large amount of brain damage and he had 15 strokes due to the accident. Mm. So there's a lot of brain damage. And for three months, he laid in the bed. And it wasn't until getting him in, getting him into a good rehab center where we had good physical therapists and speech therapists that actually worked with him. And he's back at work. He, I mean, when I first got him into therapy, he could not sit up on his own. He could barely speak. He wasn't doing much. And now he lives on his own and he's back at work. That is the beauty of being able to exercise the brain out. Well, you know, and I love hearing that because so many people have an event that happens to them. Maybe it's certainly not as massive as that. And then say, that's it. I'm done. You know, it's over. And and the problem with that, of course, is that they make themselves right. Um, but what you're saying from a, um, a clinical point of view, I may say it from a psychological point of view, don't give up hope, don't give up, you know, um, the ability to, to take, uh, take steps, but clinically they can rebuild their brain and, yes. and it's happening and, you know, and, and so never, never give up on any of okay. this. Yeah. Okay. So for brain health and the little um, thing I, I wrote up here, I had three steps that I listened to PBS. <laughs> this is where my knowledge has come from. And they said, number the first step that you have to have for brain health is engagement. Would you agree with that? You have to stay in social contact Absolutely. and engage. And yes. is, is that engaged with anything or people or video game? Does it mean, what does it mean exactly? It means anything that you are interested in. So again, most people at a social contact. So what I have seen during COVID is a lot of people, they have been self-isolated and they have lost a lot of function. They have lost the, their ability, the brain-mouth connection is is not quite there at the moment. And I know that they'll get it back, but it was really? simply that they stopped talking to people. They kind of just sheltered in their house and stopped talking. Now, right, wow, different, but that's what happened. Wow. Um, a lot of people, though, there are people that don't like people. And so those guys, I'm not going to say you must social interact. More they like, again, games. They'll like reading. They like keeping active. So it's engagement or whatever you're interested in. Yeah. And that's going to keep the brain, you know, jiving. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. We've talked about exercise and physical exercise. Um, any brain exercises? I mean, just pure brain exercises like uh, luminosity you were talking about. Are there other, um, you know, apps or anything people can do? Oh, yeah. But, I mean, if you if you search on your uh, your app store, uh, brain health, it all comes up. So there, there are lots of different games. 
we always recommend things like crosswords for our older population that doesn't they don't use like their cell phones. Yeah. Um, it's things like crosswords, chess, any of those board games. Reading is huge. Um, again, just keeping active in in something that engages you. So I have a gentleman, he's 101 years old. Oh my goodness. He's a doctor. Um, and he loves to write all of his stories down. And that's what he does is he writes books. And I, I swear that he comes in just to sell me his new book. Um, so he comes in every like six months because I've written another one. I'm going, okay, I guess I'll <laughs> You're fine. Go out, write some more. Exactly. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, and um, so, and then strategic cognitive learning. You hear about, you know, if you really want to keep yourself uh you know, sharp, you should uh, learn a new language, right? Play a musical instrument. Any of these, any of these, all of these, if you want to, you know, heighten your brain awareness. I think learning a new language, again, going back to, I, um, I'm horrible with language, so I didn't do it. But um, after I learned about the strokes, I thought about that very seriously about, hey, I've got to learn another language. So if my stroke center happens to be taken out, I've got another one. Uh, <laughs> Brain runs on music. Um, very yes. interestingly, um, if you've ever heard of a, he was an old neurologist. His name was Oliver Sacks. Oh, of course. Um, and yes, yes, and so I read the book to, about what? Is, what is it? The guy who mistook his wife for a hat. Yes. What a great title for a book. I love that title. It yeah. catches you and brings you in. It does. Yeah. Um, he wrote another one called Musical Philia, um, mm. and it's all about how the brain interacts with music. Interestingly, things, even when we have dementia, it's the songs. You can play a song and it brings back all the memories. Yes. Music goes along, whether you need to play an instrument or whether you just get engaged with music. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. So now as our brain fitness person here, what would you sum up if we want to keep our brains where we want them to be as we age. And, um, you know, all of us have, um, have concerns, of course, as soon as we keep, uh, you know, we lose a word or two, or we, um, or we keep losing our glasses or whatever, what is, um, normal aging and what is abnormal aging? So normal, we have this thing, uh, in medicine called activities of daily living meaning things that you would do, you know, making, making your food, making sure that you can eat and, and take care of your daily life. Uh-huh. And how we define normal and abnormal is what affects activities of daily living. Huh. So everybody, you, me, uh, the gas attendant, we all lose our keys here and there. We all go through phases. Uh-huh. Um, I was telling somebody earlier today that I went through a phase when I was a teenager when I went through this phase of I lost my driver's license, no matter where I went. So there was a time <laughs> in California that submitted me like five different driver's license because I kept losing them. Yeah. And then I'd find them. Yeah. Was I demented? No, I was just a scattered teenager. Was the universe yeah. telling you not to drive? <laughs> I mean, maybe it was a message. Perhaps that too. Um, but bottom line, what it comes down to is that again, it really wasn't affecting my day-to-day activity except not driving. Um, but it comes down to if you lose your keys, if you're having a little bit of misplacement, that's normal. Lose a word here or there. The whole senior moment thing that everybody talks about that happens to everybody, no matter your age. Um, our seniors tend to pay attention to it a little bit more because they go, oh, am I getting dementia? Yeah. And that's where I typically say, no, not really, because you're concerned about it. It's more so when you can't function 
when you're messing up on your bills because it, it's not just one bill, it's many bills. Um, when And take away the stress factor, everything that we always talk about when we're talking about what to worry about. Do you have a lot of stress going on or is that stress gone and you're functioning like you would, but you're messing up on bills, you're forgetting to eat, you're having difficulty figuring out how to use either remote television, that kind of thing. Well, if that's a criteria, I've never, I've never been able to do that. Why don't they just have on and off? That's just all I need. Dr. Schaefer, thank you so much. I feel so much smarter. My wits are clearer. (laughs) Just being around you, I am reassured that I'm not losing my brain, but no, uh, no, no. but you know, the thing about brain health, and I think it's a new, um, I hope it becomes a new fad because the fitness fad has not, not that it's a fad. We all should be fit. I, I grant that. However, I think we've paid too much attention to that area of physicality, not enough maybe to the brain, not intelligence, emotional intelligence, which I would call, um, you know, intelligence and emotion and bringing them together. So to have a, to have a real solid stool, you need three legs. You know, you can't just have muscles. You got to have got to work your brain. You've got to work your emotional health as well. And I just think it helps to hear from someone who knows um, some of the things to do for that. You know, the memory, the attention, the, uh, the, the ability to stay focused. Because this is something that keeps all of us going or not. And cause, you know, the other thing is that the amount of stress it causes when you are overstressed and not functional you know, it becomes that kind of circular process, you know, and, and then you're then you're spinning out of control. So thank you so much for all your insights here. Thank you. Appreciate it. OK, of thank course. you. Thank and you so much. we'll have you back and we'll stop sharpen our wits even more. <laughs> I like it. Thank okay. you so much. You bet. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the Web at hotpiemedia.com the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.